Salutations from space and aloha from Earth. This is Gemini Brett, celestial navigator of this storytelling podcast. Today is Monday, the day of the moon, June 6th, 2016, 10.33 p.m., and I'm recording from the shores of the Puget Sound in West Seattle's Lincoln Park. Capricorn is on the rise, the ninth degree, and the moon is setting. It's just set into the mountains here. Cancer moon, Diana's bow, it was beautiful to see that first apparent moon after the new moon alignment, which was two days ago, June 4th, in Gemini, and with Venus there in Gemini as well. Venus, who today, June 6th, made her exterior conjunction to the sun this time, symbolic of Inanna, being resuscitated. I like to call this now the midnight of love. In this park today, I officiated my first wedding. Well, actually, it wasn't my first wedding. I haven't been married. And I don't think you could officiate your own wedding anyway, but I officiated a wedding for the first time for a couple of friends. It was a lot of fun. It was a super Gemini ordeal, the Indiana Jones adventure quests. Um, and I chose this time for them in a session for marriage. They wanted to get married this time. I said, I don't know, Venus is in the underworld, you know. And I said, look, if you're going to go for it, do this Monday because that's Venus Kazemi. Yeah, Kazemi, this ancient term that some have translated as in the heart of it. So even though Venus on this day is as far from Earth as she can get, she's been hidden for some time. She spent months, nine months plus in the morning sky, eastern sky, eastern star, morning star and descended slowly into the underworld, disappeared really from our view in May, and takes her long trek in the hidden realms. But on this day, she aligns behind the sun. And why I like to think of it as the midnight of love is I trip a lot about how we start our days at midnight. I mean, in old times, the idea was to start your day at sunrise. makes sense. But you can't really do that if you're working with a clock, right? Because sunrise is at a different time each day. So beginning the day at midnight is really interesting because that's when the sun is really in its darkest hour, right? Furthest removed from us. Yet also taking the turn, starting to climb so it'll find its way to sunrise later on. It's like this with our calendar that most of us use now too right we've got this january 1st thing pretty much a winter solstice start date for the calendar year we really start on the sixth of the 12 days of christmas um but what is that right i mean in the old days you would start at vernal equinox the resurrection of the sun spring equinox when days begin growing longer than the nights but not now now we start in a sense, in this darkest time, the longest night, 
in the shortest day. So it's very similar to starting at midnight for the day itself, right? Because it's like this promise, the birth of the sun, and that it will return to its glory. We have that resurrection at spring equinox and summer solstice in so many ways, the glory of the sun. So the midnight of love, this idea where Venus is so far from Earth, behind the sun, but somehow Kazemi in the heart of it still, as if the sun is lensing her energy of love, that energy of the goddess, here to us. And Venus and the sun in this alignment, and a couple days ago, moon, sun, and Venus, all together in a grand, mutable cross. Jupiter and Virgo, been staring at for some time out here. Saturn retrograde in Sagittarius and Neptune in Pisces, all very strongly aligned. Immutable Grand Cross. This chart that I've been looking forward to for over a year, really feeling it's the most powerful time, astrologically speaking, of 2016. And what I'm calling, as I'll title this podcast, The Pillars of Truth. So I'm not going to speak so much about Venus Kazemi in this episode because in a few days I'll be recording an interview with one of my teachers, Kaylin Castell of the Shamanic Astrology Mystery School and the Venus Alchemy Group about this time of Ananda's resuscitation of this midnight of love and the goddess on this grand cross with her promise to return to us. In mid-July, she'll come back from the darkness and show her light from the evening sky. And it's at this time of Venus Cassini when, in a way, she transitions from the morning side to the evening side, though she does so in the unseen places. So Kaylin and I will talk about that some for the 13th Flower Project I've been at with Maria Stark and many guests since August of 2015 when Venus began her current quest, her 19-month synodic cycle. So if you want to hear more about Venus and the midnight of love and Inanna and this death and rebirth of the goddess, tune in to the 13th flower. This will be episode 5 of that project. And I haven't been recording much for it since Venus went into the underworld. I haven't been producing much content at all. I've really taken it slow in this last month, this Taurus moon, and the last episodes I recorded for the Storytelling Podcast was really about how Mercury's been bringing our overmind or the overtone of the collective consciousness into the earth signs and right now into Taurus. In fact, yesterday on June 5th, Mercury made maximum morning elongation his highest and brightest in the morning sky. And that Taurus essence and the Taurus new moon, the Taurus Mercury transit all in early May really heard me stating intentions of slowing down and relaxing some of the 
occasional overproductivity and even scattered creation into the simplicities and the bare necessities, those Mother Nature's recipes. Had all these retrograde planets, Mercury, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, Pluto, all retrograde at the same time. And I guess I was a little surprised to see how true to form of what many of this astrological art were saying and suggesting would be the case of feeling a little slow. So it's hard for me, having chosen this moniker of Gemini Brett, to be in times where I'm not kind of in constant creation mode. But I've been relaxing into that and looking at my patterns of shaming myself when I'm missing deadlines and wondering why we would set those for ourselves anyway. And just listen to that phrase, deadline, you know. How about lifeline? So here I am walking on the shores of my favorite place, perhaps. It's been a long time since I've been home to do so. And staring at the twins in the sky, Castor and Pollux. I have this song called Gemini Moon, and there's a line that's the twins of the night are here to remind us this death doesn't mean that we are dying. We're going to speak about these twins and Gemini and the pillars of truth in this grand cross, how it's charged, and why I feel we are given an opportunity this time to engage with truth, perhaps, that we've been hiding from. And probably we're going to get into some challenging places because... I see a lot of correlations at this time now with the chart of 9-11-2001 when in so many ways our world changed. And I feel now in the Saturn opposition of that time, halfway to the Saturn return, that we are having an opportunity to walk away from this church that we were, many of us in our culture, enticed to be indoctrinated into a church of fear. Maybe before we go there, since that could be a little more uncomfortable, we can talk about some astronomy and some archetypal astrology as I want to do and as you know typically these podcast episodes start with the intro music and me talking about how we're going to start with an old starry story and that's not happening right now because I really want to engage us in this contemplation Maybe I'll just share a story from my own recent experience instead. But first, let's talk about the moon a bit. We saw Diana's bow tonight. And the art I'm going to post with this episode is that of the Rider Waite 
tarot card of the high priestess the number two card the roman number two looking like that gemini glyph though this is said to be the sign of the moon and you can see in the lower right of the card that baby crescent that waxing crescent that diana's bow so many ways the new moons that we celebrate the alignment of moon and sun is like no moon right can't be seen unless it's at the lunar nodes the intersection points of the moon's orbit and the sun's orbit as seen from earth and when that's the case we have an eclipse a solar eclipse as we did in pisces and march and will again in virgo late august early september because the nodes at our time the nodes of the moon south node in pisces north node in virgo so if we have a new moon moon and sun aligned in the degrees of the zodiac longitudinal alignment that is at the nodes and in this year it's pisces or virgo we have the opportunity to witness an eclipse and those are the two eclipse seasons of a year when new moon or full moon aligns at the lunar nodes because if the moon and the sun align anywhere else the moon is either going to be above the sun or below the sun from our point of view can't be seen because the glare of the sun keeps her from our view but she does not block that light of the sun from our eyes and hopefully that makes sense i do a lot of this with some video and a thing i posted on my youtube some time ago that i think was called eclipses (laughs) so you can check that out and it's cool to look into these eclipses they carry a lot of significance and the fact that we only have a couple of year or a couple seasons a year of potential solar and lunar eclipses is uh, one of the most interesting astronomical and astrological studies available to us here on Earth. So this time is really interesting, the Gemini new moon that we just had on June 4th, because the moon's as far from the lunar nodes as possible, squaring the nodes. So it's halfway between the south node in Pisces and the north node in Virgo. Now, perhaps better names for the nodes are the descending node for the south node and the ascending node for the north node. Why is that? Because at the south node, at the descending node, this is where the moon, in its path, descends from above the ecliptic, the path of the sun, and goes below the ecliptic. And at the north node, the ascending node, the moon comes back up, crossing from below to above. And this is lunar latitude. This does not show up in an astrology chart. I mean, it does if you understand the relationship of the moon and the nodes. For example, today, the moon is in Cancer, at home in her domicile, as the ancients would say. The north node is in Virgo. And the moon will find its way to Virgo about a quarter way through this current cycle. In fact, we will have the first quarter moon in the sign of Virgo. I believe, what is that date? June 12th. And the moon's north node is in Virgo. 
So around the time of the first quarter, the moon will cross from below the ecliptic to above the ecliptic. This is lunar latitude. So I can see right now that because the moon has not quite made its way to its north node, or its ascending node, this has to mean that the moon is below the ecliptic. So the moon has what would be called southern latitude. And why southern latitude for below? Well, if you know how the sun works throughout the course of the year, the azimuth, right, the angle of the sunrise or the sunset, I'm standing here on the western shores right now. Well, the sun sets due east at equinox. You could say spring equinox and then sets further north every day towards summer solstice. Solstice, the stopping of the sun, it turns around and comes back, sets due west on fall equinox and then falls south. It's maximum southern set on winter solstice stops and comes back. It's like that, right? So though the moon today was at 15 degrees Cancer, it's not setting where the sun would at 15 degrees Cancer because the moon is in southern latitudes. It's below the path of the sun and that also means that it's going to set south of where the sun would at the same degree. All this stuff's a little bit easier with videos and I look forward to sharing that stuff sometime soon with my coming video course. One of these deadlines I didn't meet was hoping to release that with Mercury at his height yesterday but the time's not right and I remind myself these sharings are better when they are inspired rather than forced. Speaking of inspired, <laughs> taking a curve here on our walk, and wow, Mars is bright. Have you been digging his red light lately? It's amazing. Mars retrograde, having recently retrograded back into one of his preferred signs of Scorpio, as we were told is literally as bright as Jupiter right now. I'm looking at both of them and I'm looking at Saturn. And I didn't even know Mars could get as bright as Jupiter. But it's been amazing. Saturn too, super bright right now at the brightest possible Saturn brightness because every year when the sun is opposite Saturn, and that means Earth is as close to Saturn, Saturn's closest, brightest at solar opposition. Saturn rises when the sun sets. And this is happening now. So bright Saturn, the folks Gary Caton and Adam Gainsburg and Julene Packard Lewis at Sky Astrology Conference have begun to call this time for a outer planet the midnight star phase, midnight Saturn phase. But it's hard to respect Saturn's luminosity right now, brilliance, magnitude, because Mars is close by and just shining. And perhaps Mars retrograde in Scorpio will serve this potentially challenging topic that 
uh, keep assuring us we will return to. But first, I want to say a few more things about the moon and about Gemini. So I look at Castor and Pollux in the sky of the zodiacal constellation that we would call the twins in the shamanic astrology mystery school. Why? Because Gemini, the seasonal sign, is no longer aligned to the twins, but aligned instead to the bull. So when I talk about bull and twins, I'm talking about constellations. When I talk about Taurus and Gemini, I'm talking about signs, seasonal signs. This is due to precession of the equinoxes. I've teased talking about it a few times. It's a much easier thing to do with video, so that's more to be shared in, in the art of the chart courses that I feel I will be bringing forth pretty soon. In fact, one of the intentions I set for this Gemini New Moon is to return to creative output not forced, but to see what's blocking me at times when I feel like I'm having a hard time getting things done, and that's kind of been the case the last month. I had called it in, and it seemed like it came in a little stronger than I thought I was calling it, which is good for me, but I kind of feel with my productivity that I've been walking through mud or one of those dreams where you're trying to throw a punch underwater, you know? And I've been thinking about the periodicity of productivity and the tides a lot, the spring tides and the neap tides. It's kind of a new study for me, very interesting. Castor and Pollux, these stars of the zodiac, are actually in northern latitude. They're above the ecliptic. Gemini is a tall constellation. The heads of the twins above the ecliptic, their feet well below, and a couple stars that, in a sense, make up their groins that are called Wasat. <laughs> Wasat. That's the groin of Pollux or Polydeuceus and Mabusta. Mebsuta, Mebsuta, the groin of Castor. And those are cool stars to know, much dimmer than Castor and Pollux, but those are the ones that are actually on the ecliptic. So, so much of the art of the chart and the way that I'm engaging with the sky now is to be able to look at the chart and draw the sky, or be able to look at the sky and draw the chart. And I very much look forward to teaching that. Most of my teachers, beginning with Daniel Jamario and the Shamanic Astrology Mystery School, the folks at the Sky Astrology Conference, they, like me, have a fascination for the sky and connecting the heavens and the earth. Oddly enough, this is not typical for astrologers in our day and age. I've been having a lot of visions lately about how in the Hellenistic tradition, this rich astrological tradition, was born in Alexandria around 100 BC in that time, that that, in a sense, is where observational astrology went to die. Because the Babylonians and the Egyptians and previous periods of this art had done such a great job 
of figuring out the planetary movements that now they were all charted like we have them today right you can just cast a chart in a computer and so we spend a lot of the time like really developing these techniques of astrological delineation but forgetting in a sense where it comes from <laughs> and I like most of my teachers and peers that I hang out with in this world receive information directly from the sky and that's available to all of us we just have to remember to look up and to look above and to look up below so these are the terms that I'm using for northern latitude and southern latitude and it's really fun to see this with the moon so this Gemini new moon was the lowest or belowest most extreme southern latitude new moon of the year okay if the moon's descending node where it crosses from above to below the path of the sun is in Pisces and the ascending node is in Virgo then halfway between those two mutable signs is Gemini and that means Gemini now with the nodes South Pisces North Virgo Gemini is where the moon's southern bend is it's a fun term you see because that's where the moon reaches its maximum southern or below the ecliptic position and then it comes back up can we kind of get this essence of the midnight of love but this would be like the midnight of the moon's latitude having nothing to do with the time midnight by the way and I think you're picking up what I'm putting down there but it's the moon as far below the sun as it can get from our point of view and happening at a new moon so what does that mean how can we work with that astrologically when we tap into more of the astronomical information by engaging with the sky the task then is to as an astrologer help bring that into form and for me the moon below the ecliptic in a way does this so we talk about the pillars of truth and this title with this Gemini new moon of this month and this grand cross in many ways well Gemini has this study of many truths at least two and in this earth game we often dance with the contemplations of duality day and night black and white yin and yang notes and rests diurnal motion zodiacal motion which I think I'll return to above the ecliptic below the ecliptic latitude this is something we can see with the moon this is something you can know with all the planets if you know where their nodes are too just by looking at a chart but latitude itself is not explicitly written on the chart you have to have 
in a sense, somewhat of an esoteric understanding about the motions of the planets on another level. And I think it's important. So it's fun right now thinking about these things like Mercury and Taurus. And Mercury in that Taurus overmind, in that cycle for a few months until we'll shift into the Virgo overmind. And that's what the last podcast episodes were about. So you can dig those if you would like. Mercury, fast-moving fella, in Taurus, a sign, an archetype that prefers it to be slow, earthed. Well, there's one of these wonderful places where the dance of duality in the Earth game can bring us a little tension. And I've been feeling that one personally, as I have mentioned. And what about this Gemini new moon? Gemini, typically an archetype that likes to move pretty quickly, the winds that blow. Having this moon so far below, you see closer to the Earth. Gemini, an air sign, alchemically one of the blades up and out, but the new moon in a way is below, perhaps down and in. So is that a conundrum? Is that tension? Or does that actually bring an opportunity for more experience and the middle way, the balance? These are some things cosmic I have been contemplating this week. Gemini, this quick thought, and this pursuit of truth. You know, I love shamanic astrology's descriptions of the intents of the Gemini Mystery School, which is the intellectual pursuit of truth and the embodiment of eternal youth. Trickster, circus performer, court jester, the only one who can tell the king the truth without having his head cut off because he's doing so not for personal gain, but in service to truth and service to spirit. And the king can take the wise advice without suffering the shame of allowing the court to know he's doing so. Because the jester delivers the information through the painted makeup of the clown and the blur of juggled swords and whatnot. Spinning on a barrel, you know. Heyoka, Crow. Don Juan, even. Some of these archetypes where it's a little bit harder to put the finger to the truth that this mutable archetype, Gemini, like its mutable counterpoint parts, Virgo, Sagittarius, Pisces, is a devotion to spirit, a service to spirit. At least this term used by those of us who study within the hallowed halls of the Shamanic Astrology Mystery School and a term I love and I find to be very true to the intent of these archetypes, Virgo priestess, Sagittarius seeker, philosopher, Pisces healer, mystic. Gemini, a little bit harder to see how the trickster and the shapeshifter and the puer, the eternal youth, is a service to spirit. And having chosen this moniker of Gemini, something that reflects my own ascendant and my 
moon, though I am a Scorpio by sun sign. Something that I have devoted myself to covering in this world in the way that I hear this celestial song of a birth chart. <laughs> Something I most likely chose even before I checked in. So we had a new moon at its southern bend. The Gemini pursuit, perhaps wanting to come down to earth. These thoughts, yeah, of the mind, air, that can just run wild and take us so far up and out into the cosmos. Perhaps with this southern bend alignment, asking us also to set the intentions to bring those contemplations into form, down to earth. So these pillars of truth, pillars of material, perhaps as they're shown on this high priestess card, one black and one white. And you can see on the card that one has the letter B and one has the letter J. So that fascinated me at first because those are my initials and numerologically speaking, it said that my soul number is a two. I was born on 10 1975, Kabbalistically re reducing to two via 11. So when I saw the two card from the Rider weight deck, this high priestess, and saw my initials, I was like, wow. But clearly they do not stand for Brett Joseph, <laughs> but Boaz and Joaquin, which it is said were the pillars of Solomon's temple. Very interesting that. And that they are an expression of duality in its many forms. See on this card too, along with that Diana's bow, that baby crescent moon, that visible new moon, in the lower right, the two pillars with the B for Boaz and J for Joaquin, the Roman numeral two up at top, this high priestess with her moon crown holding the Torah. And behind her, kind of subtle, some of the sephira of the Kabbalistic tree of life. Though it has been told to me that that tree of life used in the mystical Jewish traditions, Kabbalah, was first originated in Africa. Is that true? Who's to say? Certainly true for the man who told me that. Many people's truth, I think, would disagree. And isn't that interesting? Which one is true? Both. All of them. And I think this is a really important engagement with the Gemini Mystery School of honoring the truth that there are many truths. What do we have, eight billion people getting close? Eight billion truths. Perhaps even eight billion universes if you want to go there. Eight billion creators in their strange matrix bubbles <laughs> making their own reality some would suggest. 
Okay, I just, or do I? <clears throat> I mean, even Donald Trump, who's been in our face more than we would like, and hopefully that's not going to be the case for a long time, although the alternative seems pretty damn scary to me as well. Um, <clears throat> this guy's saying some outlandish shit. Part of my language. But is it his truth? Could be, you know. Now, does that mean it's truth with the capital T? Higher truth. And I think most of us, when we hear that man's speech, would say, hell no. And then the one who seems to be getting the nod from the other party... Again, some weird duality experience here in our culture. The blue and the red. Well, that one's just lying through her teeth. (laughs) And yet, is she convincing herself that it is her truth as she's trying to convince us? It's a very strange thing to be able to hold this space to honor the potential truth that there are so many potential truths. Trump is a really interesting example for me because the man's a Gemini and he's born at the time, almost at the exact time, of a lunar eclipse, right? Which means sun in Gemini, moon in Sagittarius, but at the nodes, right? So the shadow of the earth covering the moon. Now, he was born during the day, so this eclipse would not have been seen in the northern hemisphere. Yet it's still happening energetically. And this is really important because when we talk about this grand cross that's happening now, we really want to look at the polarities, okay? The signs opposite one another on the wheel of life, the zodiac. And to see how they balance each other. In fact, how, in a way, for example, there is no Gemini without Sagittarius. In a way, there is no Virgo without Pisces. No Aries without Libra. Because these opposite signs, Aries, selfness, Libra, othership, (laughs) they are here on the other sides of a spectrum to help one another find the middle way. Yeah, and this is a very important exploration, perhaps mostly alive in the contemplations of Gemini. Hot and cold are the same thing. They are temperature. They are different extremes or polarities of the same thing night and day. Yeah? The middle way says in a way these are both expressions of time or the earth's spin. Mars, Aries, and Antares, anti-Aries, the two that I'm looking at. What is it to have these words like anti-something, encounter-something, these opposites, and we're told opposites attract, and magnetics, north and south poles suggest this is quite true. And finding this middle way, Finding in this engagement of the dance of duality in the earth game, polarity, syzygy, 
to be not to. As Adam Gainsbourg spoke to me when we talked about the marriage of the divine feminine and the sacred masculine, not to merge the two into one. But this unification of not two-ness, and there's really no words for this thing, right? So this is sometimes where the trickster contemplations are just really hard to follow. And hopefully we all have them. And hopefully in this month, this Gemini month that began June 4th, 2016 with the Gemini New Moon, our intentions will lead us to opening our minds to allowing the truth that there are many truths. So let's talk about these oppositions of the Grand Cross, Gemini and Sagittarius. Gemini, these many truths. Everyone has their own truth. All the stuff that I'm babbling about on our walk through the park this eve. Versus Sagittarius, the arrow, yeah, pointing to the one thing, the quest, the intuitive pursuit of truth in service to spirit. In the language of Daniel Jamario and Kaylin Castell's Shamanic Astrology Mystery School. But see, it's this higher truth, and that can sometimes bring us into some fundamental view of there can be only one. You must pray in this way and through this person with the weird hat for you to be heard by the great spirit and the higher untouchable flames beyond and above. Is that true? And how has that fundamentalism led to issues? So if we're in a space where we can only do the one, the one way, there's only one truth higher truth, truth with capital T. Well, sometimes perhaps that's right, sometimes that's perhaps very wrong, and then Gemini, you see, brings the balance. No, there can be many. And what about if we're doing too many of the many, and we're scattered, and we can't even finish one thing before 17 begins? (laughs) Gemini trait that sometimes is seen as sin. Well, one thing I like to say in that regard is these many branches I'm called to climb all emanate from the same trunk. The river that splits comes back together at the sea, having explored and had more experience with these many tributaries. So can we release ourselves into not needing to do only one to see how sometimes the many actually are meant to be occurring simultaneously because they support one another, even sometimes when they're feeling like they are detracting or distracting from one another. But so Sagittarius, with that arrow, can bring a beautiful polarity to Gemini to keep it from being scattered. Or Walter mittied out living these two ways at once, or perhaps many, many. Right. So, to look at Trump's chart again, <laughs> to be born Gemini, and his chart's interesting in a million ways, but just to speak about the sun and the moon, the luminaries, during the time of a lunar eclipse. So the Gemini sun, and these many things, and the duality, and the division, and you know these Gemini themes, well, it doesn't have the... Sagittarius counterpoint. I mean, the greatest 
reflection of a Gemini sun is a Sagittarius full moon. So we get these two lights that help us see the middle. But what happens when that alignment's there and yet the moon is in the darkness? I'm sorry to pick on you, Donald. But really, dude? <laughs> really? And really, people? Like, this is what we're watching? This, really, Brett? This is what I'm talking about? Come on now. Alright, well, so let's talk about Virgo and Pisces. Because that's the other side of this cross. So, well, one more thing about Gemini. I mean, in this grand cross, it's kind of a T-square between Jupiter and Virgo, Saturn and Sag, and Neptune and Pisces. Because the sides of the cross that are Gemini, Moon, Sun, Venus, all move very quickly. I mean, the Moon's already out. It was there for hours. Sun and Venus for several days, but it's not a long-standing Grand Cross like the Cardinal Grand Cross that we had in 2014, which was Mars and Jupiter and Uranus and Pluto, much slower moving things. Mars being the fastest one broke up that Grand Cross, you see. So, Moon and Sun and Venus and Gemini and then Saturn and Sag. We have this quick-moving stuff in Gemini and this slow-moving fella, the lady, Saturn, and Sagittarius. But what are the themes about Saturn in general? Structures, authorities, grounding, the rules, the operating system. There's so much to be said about that. But one thing I would say, especially with Saturn Sag. Saturn in Sagittarius retrograded this time, looking back into the past and asking us to look within about our structures and rules of spiritual seeking and higher philosophies and the quest for the vision quest for higher truth. And perhaps what happened, some of the limitations as set forth by the authority figures around how we are meant to do that. How is that a gift to Gemini? To have some more structure to our spiritual seeking for the one great truth? How is it totally preventing Gemini from doing this many at once kind of thing? Jupiter and Virgo. But constellation aligned right now. I'm staring at them right in the body of the lion, right below the body of the lion, because the lion is in mostly at northern latitudes above the ecliptic. The heart of the lion, Regulus, right on the ecliptic, one of the magical stars, the Bedouin stars, the marker stars. But most of the Sphinx lives above the ecliptic, so Jupiter centered with the lion, but below the lion. So Jupiter is Virgo, Jupiter is lion, and below the lion... And these are all themes that we get to explore when we look not only at the chart, but also to the sky. But right now, just Jupiter and Virgo. Well, Virgo, priestess, yeah, associated with Mercury, but we're Gemini's Mercury's air, mind, sign. Virgo would be more of Mercury's earth, body, mind, yeah? And in the old ways, this is fun with this grand cross of Gemini, Sag, Virgo, Pisces. Well, in the old traditions, Mercury rules Gemini and Virgo. Jupiter rules Sagittarius and Pisces. 
So this entire cross is about these different conversations in a way, if we just honor rulerships from the old traditions of Mercury and Jupiter. Their masculine sign, diurnal sign conversation. Yeah, Sagittarius fire, Gemini air. Their nocturnal feminine signs contemplation, Virgo earth, Pisces water. I love that. I love how these signs to hold the seasons. Gemini, the end of Gemini becomes summer. When it turns cancer, summer solstice. The end of Sagittarius. Yeah. Becomes winter. Pisces is the last sign of winter. Virgo is the last sign of summer. And that's perhaps something to study another time. But if that tickled your brain strings, hit pause and... <laughs> trip on that one for a while. I feel like it's a pretty fascinating and maybe kind of newish conversation, contemplation. Anyway, Virgo, the body, the priestess, the ceremonialist, devotion to the sacred work. I like to consider her in many ways the microcosm of spirit, God, goddess, universe, whatever we want to call it, is in every cell of my body. I have my direct, independent, even undependent connection to it, for this is truly what it means to be like a virgin. Pisces, on the other side, the microcosm of spirit. The I am but a single cell of the grand uni-being, to paraphrase the great Gurdjieff. We are all one, we are all connected. I am he, is he, is she, and something about the walrus. See, so they find the middle way if we allow ourselves to explore both sides. Jupiter and Virgo really expanding that attention to our sacred work, our practice, our yoga, our devotion. Neptune and Pisces, the modern ruler of Pisces, perhaps the preferred professor of the Pisces Mystery School, really bringing this connection of togetherness, oneness, compassion, even empathy to the point where we lose our boundaries and forget where I stop and you begin. And Virgo will bring us back into self. Virgo, often rather meticulous, mercurial. Practical even, bringing things into form. Pisces, mystical, poetic, avant-garde, meet in the middle. So we're challenged by these different planetary energies that might demand our attention in one direction or the other. But to have them both, though that can bring tension, also brings our attention to both sides. That helps us perhaps get stretched so far in both directions that suddenly we feel the center even more and come back. <laughs> and this image of a rubber band. You know, so you, when you shoot a rubber band, you're only pulling it in one direction. You let it go and it fires in the other one. That isn't this thing. This is like a rubber band that's being held in the middle and stretched from both sides. <laughs> it comes bouncing back and sometimes it feels like that. Some strange whiplash coming at you from both directions or being stretched in both directions. You know, that's the thing about the opposition. I mean, put yourself in like the 
yoga warrior pose. One hand's pointing at one planet, the other's pointing at the other. That's the opposition. Are they stretching you? Are they pulling you apart? Are you being drawn and quartered? <laughs> or do you feel balanced? Do you feel this beautiful wingspan, this fullness of yourself? and allow their currents to come one through your right hand and the other through the left to meet in your chest, meet in your heart, in your hara. What is it to be pulled or pushed <laughs> in those two directions, but then also from the other two? The x-axis, the y-axis, you know? And that's this idea of a grand cross. Many have said it's like the make it, break it. So how can we honor all points, all of these mutable signs, and really find their shared intent and see how they all work with one another? In a way, I mean, Virgo and Pisces are square to Gemini and Sagittarius, in aspects said to be of highest tension. Why is that? Well, some are yin song signs, Virgo, Earth, Pisces, water. Some are yang signs, Gemini, air, Sag, fire. And in my sacred geometry study, I'm really starting to unfold how the zodiac of 12 is actually two sets of six. And then threes and fours. There's a lot of fun things we can do there, but... I look forward to sharing that too more in the art of the chart. It's a much better thing to see and it's a much, much better thing to actually draw and practice and contemplate. So I think that's maybe all I'll say about this Grand Cross now. If you're feeling like you're pulled in all these different directions at once, good. Because that is the below, that's what's happening here on Earth because that's the reflection of what's going down or up above. But what do you do about that? Well, honor each voice. Ask them, these many voices without and within, to sit in council. Share their needs, their desires, their wisdom, and see how it all informs you, us, Earth. Hmm. So above and below the ecliptic, night and day, diurnal and zodiacal. I really love this. Gary Caton's been talking about this a lot in the Sky Astrology Conference sharings and on his Hermetic Astrology podcast. Gary, I know, by the way, just recorded a podcast, I believe, about the Grand Cross. I haven't listened to it yet, but if you want to hear a whole lot about that from a very innovative and studied and wise and intuitive astrologer, check out the Hermetic Astrology podcast and check out Gary's latest episode. And... I would suggest you send a donation and receive the extended podcast because they're incredible teachings every month. 
Um, but Gary's been talking a lot about diurnal motion and zodiacal motion. I spoke about this in the last episodes. So I don't want to get too deep into it right now. But the idea is diurnal motion. This is our day. This is a result of the spin of the earth. And here, everything rises in the east and sets in the west. And it's the same, you see. The moon rose in the east and set in the west. Same thing with Mercury and the sun and Venus and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn, all of them. So it's the sameness. Where zodiacal motion, which when planets are in direct motion, is in the other direction. From the west to the east, but much more slowly. Very fast for the moon. Pretty fast for Mercury. Pretty fast for Venus. Slower for Mars. Slower for Jupiter. Much slower for Saturn. Super slow for Pluto, who's rising about right now. So sameness in the diurnal direction and otherness in the zodiacal direction. So again, you see these contemplations of duality. Is one true and the other not? Is one preferred and the other not? Why? Why are they not both true? We say this statement of, I agree to disagree. (laughs) What is that about? Is that actually some strange way to say there are many truths and I honor yours and I honor mine? Hopefully so. It usually sounds pretty passive aggressive when said, (laughs) instead of supportive of this idea that there are many truths. Pillars of truth. These pillars outside of the Temple of Solomon. Bring me back to these pillars of the World Trade Center buildings. These pillars we see in the number 11. But first, one more thing. The moon game. You can read more about the way I play on my website, morethanastrology.com. I usually post there on a page called the moon game. The principle, there are four primary phases of the moon. New moon, first quarter moon, full moon, third quarter moon. And the way I play this game, although i got to say a lot of the ways that I play aren't posted on the site, so I try to keep it a little more simple there. I work not only with the quarters and the full moon, but also with the sextiles and the trines and these kinds of things. But the idea is to set your intentions at new moon, which so many people do, but to set them around the archetype of the new moon. So in this moon cycle, it's a Gemini new moon. And yet, it's also... As Gemini new moon at the moon's southern bend. As if Gemini is coming down to Earth. Can we set intentions around that? It's a Gemini new moon conjunct Venus. Can we set intentions around that? What does that look like? Maybe playful love. Youthful. Art. It's a Gemini moon opposite retrograde Sagittarius Saturn. We set intentions around that. It's square... Neptune in Pisces and Jupiter in Virgo, right? So there's all these different things happening, and that's one of the great gifts of the astrological art to say, hey, every new moon is not created equally. 
even every Gemini new moon is not created equally. What are the aspects? What are the alignments? Where is it in your own celestial song, your own birth chart? Where is it in the houses? How does it aspect your own planets? Where in the Gemini degrees does it align? There are these different Sabian symbols. What star does it align to? And where in the degrees as well, because that's going to show us where the next principal stages of the month will be. This particular moon cycle, new moon in Gemini, first quarter moon in Virgo, full moon in Sagittarius, but at the very last degree of Sagittarius, right at the galactic center, 29 and a half degrees Sagittarius is the full moon of this month. And that means by the time the third quarter moon comes around, the sun will have ingressed from Gemini to Cancer. We will have had summer solstice. And so the third quarter moon, not in the mutable signs like the first three principal phases, Gemini, Virgo, Sagittarius, but now in a cardinal sign. Third quarter moon in Aries, squaring the Cancer sun. So this moon cycle, if we just break it down to these four and only think about the archetypes, Gemini, new moon, Virgo, first quarter moon, Sagittarius, full moon, Aries, last quarter. And the moon game, like the very basic expression that I like to play is new moon, time to plant the seeds for like the week, at least the first few days. First quarter moon, the seeds sprout. There's tension. They're exposed to the wind and the rain. But that tension will make them stronger. It said that the wind is here to do that for the plants. Sometimes we don't even understand how these tensions have anything to do with the intentions that we set. That comes with the flowering, the illumination at full moon. We start to see how, why we could not see that those very tensions were exactly aligned to the intentions that we set was because we had patterns or blocks. And now we see what we're asked to release in this cultivation of mindfulness that will take us to the third quarter moon, the wisdom. And so in this moon game, the idea is the first quarter moon, the sprouting, the tension in that regard is very different than the third quarter moon, both square aspects moon and sun with the third wisdom now there is tension here because that's the fruit can we eat the fruit and enjoy the fruits of our labors and not hold on to these seeds in some greedy addictive way of i've earned this and (laughs) this is the pinnacle no the seeds must be released so that they can be planted for the next cycle And so the Gemini moon leads to the Cancer moon leads to the Virgo, to the Leo, to the... Well, Leo to the Virgo, to the Libra, etc. Sometimes two new moons in the same sign. Alright, I'm walking through Pitch Black Park down a kind of shady hill here, which fortunately I know very well. But if you hear me fall, call for help, please. He says to people listening sometime in the future, somewhere else. Hold on. All right. That's the place where you can basically hit your head on a tree limb if you don't know it's there. 
So what would it be to set Gemini intentions if we just think about the archetypes? And mine is to kind of bring back that creative spark, playful love, truth, most importantly. Honoring the many truths. Purging the shadows that would ask me to run away from truths that I have not yet had the courage to deal with. I got some of those, do you? Virgo, first quarter, marking the week of tensions. Well, what about in the creations, if that's this intention I'm setting? Well, Virgo, keeping the temple tidy, knowing when things are out of alignment with spirit, sometimes can say, everything's out of alignment. Whoa, like that step. And then... You know, we can't start anything before we shut it down for ourselves. I don't mean to pick on Virgo that way. In fact, I feel like that's overdone, but I am going to focus in the first quarter moon of how that archetype squares or can shut down the intentions set at new moon. So I do often pick on that archetype of first quarter moon, which regardless of what it is, as a tool yeah, for unfoldment. That's what the shadow of any archetype is actually about to help us find the gift. It's not one or the other. What else? Playful love. Well, is the symbol of virginity in the priestess path. Virgo, going to shut that down a little bit. Now, virgin certainly does not mean celibate. <laughs> That's a huge conversation, actually, when we're looking into truths conversation for another time too but maybe that's going to be something that shows itself Sagittarius full moon the illumination the vision quest the higher truth maybe something from the channel comes in in fact I can't even suggest how that one's going to be at the galactic center at the solstice point 29 and a half degrees Sagittarius in this month that started with this grand cross, I mean, it's going to be for real. The full moon. The full moon is um, June 20th, 29 and a half degrees, Sag. But somehow we see how some of the tensions that might have come into the intentions that we set make sense. And we see what we want to Release, realign, remind. So our intentions have the opportunity to truly flower and find their fruit, which in this game that I like to play shows itself with the third quarter moon, the wisdom stage in this one, in Aries. Reflecting cancer light, the third quarter moon rising late in the night. Aries, courage. That capacity to put all of our energy into one thing. <laughs> so if the Gemini intentions, for example, again, are, I want to get back to, like, constant creation, well, Virgo might say, hey, don't overdo it. <laughs> do something practical. Do something that can get done. Sag might give me the vision of this is the one, and then Aries will give me that energy to commit myself to that cause. <clears throat> if it's playful love, 
And Virgo says, keep it sacred. And Sagittarius says, this is the vision. <laughs> well, then Aries might give me the courage to go for it, you know. <laughs> but I think one thing I really want to speak about here is Aries as the warrior and what is the wisdom of the warrior. Now, I often speak about Washington, D.C. and the strange astrological magic map that that place is. It's one of my principal studies. I haven't spoken about it so much here yet. Um, but I, I mention often this statue that is on the southeast corner of the National Archives building where the Declaration and Constitution and such are kept. And it's a massive warrior, and the statement is, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. I love it. And just contemplating what is vigilance and what is liberty. And how could that be mistranslated to the idea of we have to be at war to preserve the peace? Which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. And something that we must on some level believe because we allow it. Perhaps even manifest it. And yeah, I'm talking about me. <laughs> and you. And all of us. Because this is our reality. Is that liberty? What is liberty? And when I think about that martial artist and that warrior when it's balanced, right? And when it's balanced in this middle way of peace, Aries Libra, well, it's never on the attack to preserve peace. It's never on the defense to preserve peace. Not in its righteous state, in its relaxed, responsive, non-reactive state. It is that cool warrior, you know? <laughs> that martial artist who just remains neutral even in the midst of chaos and then responds when necessary and only when necessary. It's a beautiful thing, that art. You know, look at like the Aikido masters, right? Someone's running at them and they just have this flow, right? And allow that attacker's energy to work against them. So these, you know, when we study astrology or any of these esoteric arts, the study is not only in the astrological texts. It's an art, right? So I mean, our study, for me, my studies with the trees and with beautiful people and contemplating what is the astrology of the movements of the Aikido master and these kinds of things. And I imagine if you tune into this podcast, that's kind of how you approach this art yourself. It's really important to me. You know, I talk about giving readings. We say that word. It's so weird. It's like, I'm going to read your chart like it's some book, like it's some story. No. It's not some math equation and this plus this equals this. I don't understand astrologers who work that way. Like it's only the science. And it is a science, but not an art. And your chart is a work of art. That is you. And so I can gaze at your art and describe what I see. 
And this guy or this woman can describe what they see. And perhaps one of our descriptions will resonate more with you, perhaps all of them in different ways. But who can really describe your art but you, the artist? And that's what I like to call it, the art of the charter, to call it the song and the dance. And that's perhaps for another time to go deeper into. But may we be artistic and playful, collaborative, and productive in our predictive. (laughs) All right. So this is the place to stop if you don't want to go into the challenging conversation of 9-11. But before you hit stop, if you feel like that's you, why? So many reasons why. I was on the plane the other night coming back from D.C. and uh, I went up to pee and the, the you know the beverage carts were in the aisle, so I had to walk forward through that weird knot curtain that separates me from the first class peeps. And I'm going up there, and the stewardess is their arm crossed like warrior, ye shall not pass Gandalf mode. <laughs> and she doesn't even have to say anything, right? I know what that means. That means the captain's using the facilities. So I'm going to have to go back there and hold my pee till he's done. But harder, perhaps, or it should be harder, and it's becoming not harder, and that makes me sad, is I also have to hold my tongue. Like hours before, thousands of miles before, taking off my shoes, putting the laptop in its own strange tray, riding its way through the x-ray train choo-chooing next to bottles of tiny shampoos and such. I have to go get space zapped by this new weird machine that is not good for us and we all know it but if we choose not to go through we're going to get violently frisked. And we go through and this thing's like so sensitive I feel like it can in some way determine the potential political leanings of my fastest swimming semen. (laughs) And usually, to tell you the truth, when I go through those things, I'll often work with like an essential oil, say a prayer. I do this when I go to a movie, right? I know I'm going to be exposed to subliminal messages. I make the pact now that they will not affect me. You know? So when I go through the crazy zap me machine... Yeah. This is not going to phase me. And this time I didn't do it. I didn't have my oil. And I went in and my attitude more was like, this is terrible. This is ridiculous. This is betraying my liberties as a sovereign human being. And I get through and you're waiting and they're like, oh, sir, can you go back in there again? And actually, I think it was more like, you guys aren't going to scan my balls. Sir, can you go back again and could you hold your pants up a little bit? Messing with my gangster sag, y'all. 
So I had to go get space zapped twice. Because I was holding that thought, and our thought does create our reality. I was holding that thought that was in this warrior mode. And it wasn't in the peaceful warrior mode, was it? It wasn't in the responsive mode, it was in the attack mode. Right? So perhaps in this month, in this cycle, the wisdom stage in Aries, reflecting that nurturing Cancer sun's light, though still in the Gemini moon. This is how I play the moon game. Perhaps some wisdom about that warrior pioneer energetic Aries energy will come in a little bit further. I've certainly been in that study, and I think this is really important to state also before I take this conversation a little bit further of that Aries energy, which is here to protect I mean, often, we can get into this place where we feel like we need to shake the sleepers awake. While still honoring, oh my gosh, that was me last year. Two years ago, I had this strange awakening. Now I've got to wake up the world before we all die. Ah! Not even understanding that the very fear that we are trying to awaken people up to we are actually spreading in the way that we're doing it we're doing it for love but not doing it lovingly you know people like this (laughs) you're listening to one of them and i've very much been tempering that with the assistance of some really wonderful guides and advisors and dear friends who have helped me see that i was shaking awake and that is not the true role of the warrior nobody wants to be shaken awake And who is the sleeper? The sleeper is the dreamer. The real warrior knows their role is to keep the fire warm so that the dreamer can awaken refreshed when they are ready to with that vision intact that will set us free. We are the awakened warrior and we are the dreaming sleeper. May us honor both of these truths always and not force one another or not believe that we all have to take the same path. Me personally, I have had a lot of my own spiritual awakening or my call to something other than just what this real world is or the world that I thought was real (laughs) through some of the painful experiences of looking into some hidden truth in the mystery schools that some describe as conspiracy theory, which are words basically created after the whole JFK situation to ensure that the masses, when they hear somebody speaking about something that they shouldn't hear in the eyes of the powers that shouldn't be, will just call that person a tinfoil hat freak. Words like astrology tend to do this to many people including myself for most of my life extraterrestrials roswell atlantis ha 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 911 so how can i spread this word 
without falling into some tendencies of shaking people awake. How can I do this from a place of genuine love? Of honoring the truth that there are many truths? Of honoring the truth, and perhaps this is very key in the cycle with the Sagittarius Galactic Center full moon, that we all have our own path to the heavens? Every seeker has their own path. We are each a column of smoke to rise. May we never be limited to some chimney, <laughs> some structure that's not really in service to who we are individually, uniquely. Some fundamental vision of this is the only way to do a thing. Yeah? Because we fall into that. I remember when I was at my first astrology conferences last year, in Norwalk here in Seattle. And it was amazing, right? Because I'm walking past people and just overhearing in the periphery these conversations about Saturn in the third, trining Aries, Mars, whatever. And it's like, oh my gosh, they're all like me. And found a really wonderful friend and we're sitting down drinking tea and talking astrology in the sky. And it's like, right. But then when there was a talk about Saturn and Sagittarius, and I was actually looking ahead, and that's when I first saw the, the charts of this time now, this June of 2016, and saw this grand cross, and looked at the degrees where the cross was aligning, and thought, oh my gosh, that's the 9-11 Saturn opposition. <laughs> and... The North Node, that 9-11 Sun and all of these alignments and whoa, what is that about? So I was speaking about it with some of my peers there, you know. And, and just had this kind of, sorry to say this, Brett, but idiotic thought that just because other people were astrologers that they opened to astrology the same way I did. Because I was trained in the cult of academic science that I was member to in my education that astrology was ridiculous and absurd and I never even considered it and I see this all the time when I talk to people right and try to honor where they are and try not to be a hypocrite because that's where I was forever it's okay if people don't want to look into astrology just because they were told it's nonsense how could I say that was not okay when I lived almost all of my life that way but just because, for me, I had to deal with some of the rabbit holes, as we like to say, to break through the veil into a place where actually not everything I was told is true is true. And maybe I want to start considering some of these things that I was told is not true, are not true. And suddenly astrology presented itself, and it was like, oh, wow, that's real? And, oh, wow, wow, this is what I'm meant to be? At least for now. Okay, thanks. So I did it in that way. Some people just had the book fall off the shelf when they were 12. Some people had parents who led them down this path. And me expecting that others would have had this similar awakening to astrology and its truth the way that I did is like frankly hilarious and the wonderful things about looking back on ourselves and saying well that was kind of ridiculous is not only the capacity to giggle with ourselves 
But then the question of, oh, how am I doing that now? Yeah. That's one of my favorites. And how am I doing it now? You be the judge. Judge. Anyway, I get out of my second scan the other day, and there's this guy that locks eyes with me, you know, who had just been through the same trip. And we want to roll our eyes, but we're cautious not to do so. Because, oh my gosh, I have like a plastic triangle ruler in my bag and my drawing compass, which has that little needle, and I could be arrested for smuggling on this drawing compass and this sharp needle, which could be used to hold up the plane or whatever, right? I mean, we are in this place of fear. That's ridiculous. And the funny thing is then you go fly on Thanksgiving and like all the restrictions are off. Just keep your shoes on. (laughs) Keep your computer in the bag because there's just too much traffic, too many people traveling. Well, if they were actually preventing what they were saying they're preventing, wouldn't that be the time where it would really happen? I mean, come on. So what is it then? For children to watch their parents frisk just to get on a plane... For us all to submit and stay mum in order to be protected by the boogeyman. And so I'm not here to tell you what the truth of that strange event was. What I'm here to say is that we are living in a time now where the very dark soil in which seeds were planted at that time of now 11 now have the opportunity to flower into something more beautiful. Like, like we could literally alchemize the poison of 9-11 to medicine, the lead into gold, the, the twin towers into twin flowers. Why do I say that? Because we are at the time of Saturn opposition to 9-11. Now, we've heard about the Saturn return, yeah? Saturn takes 29 and a half years to move through all degrees of the zodiac. So when you're 29, 30 years old, you have your Saturn return. Saturn's return to where it was when you were born. Halfway to your Saturn return, i.e. 14, 15 years old, you have Saturn opposition. Saturn opposite where Saturn was when you were born. And this is why I love to play the moon game. Because here's a short cycle, 29 and a half days that allows me to connect to the energetic of all of these principal phases of a cycle. So a Saturn cycle, Saturn transiting itself, Saturn returns, Saturn squaring itself, Saturn opposing itself, these principal phases of a Saturn cycle, we can learn about simply by engaging experientially with the moon game every month. We can learn about the archetypes, we can learn about the aspects, we can learn about the cycles. And so I apply these same ideas of planting seeds, like a Saturn conjunction. Saturn conjunct Saturn, or Jupiter conjunct Jupiter, whatever transit that may be. Seeds sprouting at the square, Saturn square Saturn. Seeds flowering at the opposition, Saturn opposite Saturn. Fruiting and coming into the wisdom stage, Saturn square Saturn on the other side. And here we are at the opposition of Saturn for 9-11. Now this South Bend Gemini new moon we had on June 4th, 2016 was at 14 degrees, 53 minutes Gemini. 
right at the Uranus North Node and the Venus North Node, and I'd love to speak about that, but we've had a long enough walk already, have we not? And I think I'll speak with Kaylin in this 13th flower interview we'll record this week about Venus at her node, at least, for her exterior conjunction. But very interesting for this to be at the Uranus nodes, the Uranus North Node. Planets have nodes too, because this speaks to the revolutionary nature of Uranus, the breakthrough nature. So also that's alive in our Gemini intentions this month, and that's why... I'm speaking about such taboo topics right now. On 9-11, Saturn was at 14 degrees, 53 minutes. Gemini. Sorry. 14 degrees, 45 minutes, Gemini. You see, so this new moon of June 4, 2016 was only 8 minutes and therefore basically exact to where Saturn was at the time of 9-11. On the 9-11 chart, and it's a fascinating chart in many, many ways. Pluto and Saturn were opposite. Pluto and Sagittarius, 12 degrees, 38 minutes. Saturn in Gemini, 14 degrees, 45 minutes. So this grand cross now, the Gemini new moon and Venus, Saturn and Sagittarius are aligned to that same axis where Pluto and Sagittarius and Saturn and Gemini were at 9-11. This very same axis, these middle degrees of Sagittarius and Gemini, that at least for Dane Rajar, who's perhaps the greatest modern astrologer on record, had for the USA birth chart. Rajar's USA birth chart is Sagittarius rising at 13 degrees and 10 minutes. July 4th, 1776, 5.13.55 p.m. in Philadelphia's Rogers rectification for the USA birth chart. Given that 9-11 happened while Pluto was transiting that ascendant for the USA birth chart, I think is one of many confirmations that that's a good rectification Plus, when you read Rajar, (laughs) you know that that guy was tapped in. And if you're interested in Rajar, there's a wonderful book called The Astrology of America's Destiny that I highly recommend if you're interested in the esoteric calling of USA. And to think about this entity that is our nation, well, for many of us listening, as Sagittarius rising, what that means and are we hitting that mark? I think is very important. And that 9-11 would have been a huge wake-up call to come back to that. So Saturn today, June 6, 2016, is 12 degrees, 49 minutes, Sagittarius. Pluto, a 9-11... was right there, right? And more importantly, Saturn is currently opposing 
the 9-11 Saturn. Now, often I will find, for example, a Saturn which can often present itself through obstacles, through the authority figures. Oftentimes this will show itself for folks as some kind of fundamentalism like religion or even atheism, which is religion, or scientism, which is religion, whatever. Often, at Saturn Return, we kind of take back our own authority, but what I often see is that at the Saturn Opposition, when the soul is 14 or 15 years old in a body, that's when they first wake up to the truth that the church that they grew up in is not their church. Or many people, like if you grew up in a fully atheist thing, but you really want spirit, that's oftentimes when people, sometimes to the chagrin of their parents, will go to like Christian camp or whatever. Or start looking into Buddhism or going to temple or whatever, like looking for that, you know. So the Saturn opposition halfway to the Saturn return is a very huge thing. And it usually comes from people across the table in the transit center oppositions. Think about that symbolism when you look at the chart. This is across the wheel of life from whatever it's transiting. And what is this church we've been in? Well, I'm calling it the Church of Fear. I mean, think about just that process at the airport. Think about the truth that there is literally like written law these days that a conversation like the one that I'm having right now with you could put me on the naughty list. And that the powers that be or probably shouldn't be literally have the right, if they'd like, to arrest me in the night without telling anybody and just, like, shipping me off the Gitmo. And when that's happening, and that's literally, and you might not have looked into this, but you might have, this is, like, law these days courtesy of things like the Patriot Act and even worse, the NDAA that Obama signed some years later. It's kind of things that would keep us mum. Keep us from making eye contact and rolling our eyes with the other person who doesn't want to be harassed just because they're getting on a plane. You know that glory of boarding a plane in another country where you don't have to do all that other stuff and you're like, oh my gosh, this is how it used to be. How can we make it be that way again? So there's many potential truths of what 9-11 was and was not. I'm not going to spit them all out here. I'm not going to try to convince you what it was. I have looked into it enough personally to feel convinced that the whole 19 hijackers with box cutters thing is ridiculous. I've looked into things like, oh, well, true to what was written by the neocons who said that we needed a new Pearl Harbor, that that's what this was, so we could go dominate, grab oil, whatever. I'm looking into things like the whole point of this was to instate a church of fear so that we will stay mum and toe the party line and whatever. Things like weapons of mass destruction. So this ridiculous statement by so many that led us into wars with countries that even we claimed were not involved with that strange event. And then no weapons were found. And yet, 
For a strange esotericist like myself, well, maybe there are weapons of mass destruction, but they're like the Ark of the Covenant and things written about in the Sumerian tablets and the Vedic texts and such, you know? I'm not these days disallowing myself from contemplating anything. There's no doubt that Hitler was after the Ark and the Spear of Destiny and all these things. And it brings me back to this park earlier today when we were having a Raiders of the Lost Ark theme (laughs) wedding. Anyway. You know, one trip is that... Unfortunately, not many people have looked into this, but the two... World Trade Center towers that were hit by planes were not the only two World Trade Center buildings that fell that day. There was also World Trade Center 7. And if you start looking into that, huge red flags go off of something is fishy here. And we want to look away. We want to run away from that. Because... It's hard for us to have the courage to see things that would shatter us awake from some reality that's not necessarily real. World Trade Center 7, which fell into its own footprint at the speed of a professionally demolitioned building, having not been hit by anything was called Solomon's Building. And just like the Temple of Solomon had these two pillars, Joachim and Boaz, well, the Solomon Building in this strange temple complex, the World Trade Center complex, had the two pillars, World Trade Center 1 and 2 out front. And now, instead, we have Freedom's Tower. But do we have freedom? And is there a fall tower true to that tarot card that we are meant to either fall or jump from? Because it's ivory and it's false. And once we've abandoned ship from the fake, perhaps we will have the opportunity to righteously rebuild a tower of truth from its crumbling bricks. And so this is my challenge to me. So what was that thing? I encourage you to look. And I encourage you most to look at that which would prevent you from looking. And I'm not just talking about these weird laws that have stripped our constitutional rights and liberties in ridiculous ways over these last 15 years. It's been a long time since our world changed. It changed on that day. But I'm talking about what prevents us from seeing these truths just because they are hard to see, you see. Because as above, so below. As within, so without. And my question always for me is what is my 9-11 Because in my outer experience, given that that thing did happen, that's a reflection of something within me. What is my Patriot Act? 
What contract have I signed within that would prevent me from looking? What is my NDAA? What contract have I signed within the code, the arc of my own soul that would say I'm committing terrorism or treason or something just to question that hidden truth I'm afraid to see? Even beyond the motives of the whole thing, I am so interested and what is that in me that is blocking me from seeing truth with the true perspective that if I can find that within me and bring healing to it then this world without which is a reflection of me will also be healed and when I say me I would ask you to hear that as you We are all creating this thing together. We all have truth. And most of us, I believe, would agree that we all live in a world where that strange event happened and changed everything we know about life. This is a time where we have the opportunity to see the twin flowers that will illuminate something in the darkness that we can release so that we will manifest a better way and bring us back to liberty, a true liberty, and may we be vigilant to that. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and that is not war for peace. Everything else I would say, you will say better to yourself. Everything else I would ask, you will ask in a way that resonates better with the way that you need to hear it, or wish to hear it, or will serve you, and therefore serve us all. So I appreciate you making it to the end of this walk today. As I know this topic can be so challenging, it still is for me. And I hope that in this month, in the pillars of truth, I will answer this call to look again, but this time, instead of pointing my finger outward, to point it within so I can find the source of this chaos in me that I've been hiding from. And in true Gemini trickster fashion, in the midst of that exploration, may I remain light of heart and have some fun. For as crazy as it is in this weird place, isn't it the earth game after all? So I will end this night breathing in the white bright light of Father Jupiter. (laughs) Below the lion and exhaling a prayer to that bright red 
Mars. The Scorpion. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you think. This is your friendly astrolonaut, Gemini Brett, signing off. I will see you in space.